How's everybody doing? Yeah, I'm well. Thanks for asking. Would you like to sit down? Knock yourself out. Gently. All right, good to see you. Hey, we're going to look into scripture together today, but just before we get to that, I want to just give you a little heads up on part of my journey this last week. Uh, on Sunday afternoon, seven pastors from Folsom got together and we headed down to Dillon Beach together. So lead pastors of seven different churches in our community, we got together and we just said, let's just go on a retreat and let's be together as pastors. And I don't know how you know, if you know how churches work a lot, sometimes, sometimes churches don't trust each other a lot you know sometimes pastors don't trust each other a lot because sometimes they feel like they're in competition with one another and if you're competing against somebody then you're not sure if you should really trust them right and sometimes that's how churches go and I just I want you to know about this retreat we took last weekend or this la- the beginning of the week uh, so you know what goes on in Folsom because the community among us is different than that and about 25 years ago or so Several of us started praying together. Several of us pastors started praying together and just seeking God's heart for each other and seeking God's blessing for each other. And it's been a beautiful gift over these years. And uh, so we went on this retreat together and the whole agenda was simply to listen to each other and to say, what's going on in your world? What's going on in your own heart? And what's going on in your family's heart? And what's going on in your church's life? And what do you think is going on in our community? And then one at a time, we just prayed for each of those pastors as we went through those days together. And I think that makes a difference in our town, frankly. I, I, I get a chuckle sometimes, you know, sometimes Folsom is a great place to live, right? And every now and then, the city of Folsom gets some kind of a prize or some kind of a recognition. So recently, within the last month, some publication, I don't know who it was, but somebody decided that Folsom was the best place to raise a family in California. You know, and it's pretty cool because the Chamber of Commerce, they're all patting their back, you know, like, hey, we did a good job. It's a good place to, you know, and the city council, they're all like, you know, they're breaking their arm to go, hey, good job for us, you know, and I'm like, good job for us too because, I, you know, what, what makes a town a great place to live? Is it just the schools? Is it just the business climate? Is it just the parks and recreation that we have? Or is there a spiritual element to that that really matters? And I don't say that, I don't really, I'm joking about patting ourselves on the back, but I just think you should know it's not just about Lakeside. It's not uh, about what we're doing only. It's about what God is doing among us in his church here in our region. It's really good stuff. So I want you to know about that. Uh, we are going to look into scripture today, and I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, some of you are newer with us, and so you haven't walked this whole journey, so I want to bring you up to speed. Some of you have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, and some of you not quite as much, so I want to bring you up to speed with us, and then we're going to jump into this. So we've been talking together about the book of Romans since Easter. And I don't know how many months that is, but several months we've been talking about Romans. And just to let you know about this, it's a book in the Bible in the New Testament. And uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome that existed 2,000 years ago. And it was written to a bunch of followers of Jesus to help them be better followers of Jesus. And what's fascinating to me is we've been finding out now 2,000 years later, that this letter that was written to followers of Jesus so long ago to help them be better followers of Jesus is still helpful for us as followers of Jesus to make us better followers of Jesus. You follow? I'm not sure I followed all that, but that's, that's kind of what that is. And so we've just said, let's just take some time and let's walk through it together and let's figure out what this thing looks like and how do we follow Jesus in a more uh, beneficial way. Now, the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans... 
uh, focus on doctrine. And some of you, when you hear about doctrine, you're like, oh, doctrine, that's, that's got to be the driest subject you can talk about. And some of you are like, doctrine, you know, give me the meat. I want to have the meat. So you get all excited about it. So there's a lot of range of people's impression when they come to a, a letter like the book of Romans. But we spend a lot of time talking about these doctrines, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of being separated from God, the doctrine of redemption, which is God bringing us back to him. And doctrines like justification and sanctification, all these different kinds of things, really, really important things. But they're doctrine. And unless we stop for a minute and go, yeah, but how does that apply to us? Then it won't make any difference. I think doctrine without application just becomes arrogance. Just about how much I know or how much you know. And how much you know won't help you unless it's coupled with what you do and how you live that out. It's like having a bunch of truth but no grace. And Paul says, let's put them together. Let's put grace and truth together. And so when you get to chapter 12 of the book of Romans, he switches over, kind of flips a switch and goes, I've given you all this doctrine. Now let's talk about the practical side of this and what this looks like for you. And so today, let's take another step. We've been in Romans 12 for a couple of weeks now. And so let's just take the next step in Romans chapter 12. And I want you to begin thinking about it with this verse from Romans 12, verse 3. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Paul says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, let's just, we're going to camp on that one today and just kind of think through what that means. And we're going to look at some other stuff later here in Romans 12 to figure out what that means. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And frankly, I get nervous whenever I come to a spot in the Bible where it talks about sober. Because people are going to have weird opinions about what, you know, you should think soberly. You know, so I, I remember the very first wedding I ever officiated. I was a young pastor, probably 25 years old, serving a church over in Santa Cruz. And a couple called the church office and they said, hey, would your pastor officiate our wedding? And our senior pastor was busy that day or whatever was going to go on. So he passed it down to me and he goes, hey, you want to do this wedding? I'd never done a wedding before. So this is going to be my first wedding. And not for people that I know, just strangers who called up. This is in the days when, you, you know, you couldn't just have your cousin Vinny do your wedding. You actually needed like a real pastor. And so, um, and you know, that's cool. It's different ways now. But that was my first one. And these people had to have a pastor. So I'm like... Hey, you know, I, I've never done a wedding before. They go, that's okay. We've never been married before. I'm like, fantastic. This would be great. So we met. We did some counseling. We did all this stuff. The wedding was going to be over in San Jose. So I drove over the, over the hill. Got there really early because like, the last thing you want is to be the pastor at a wedding and you get a flat tire and you show up late, you know, in a messed up suit. That's just, that's bad. So I got there early. I'm watching what's going on. I'm watching the wedding party get together and do their stuff. And I realized pretty quickly that everybody in the wedding party before the wedding even got launched was already drunk it's like this is not what i pictured for my first wedding and i'd i'd research you know what are you supposed to say at a wedding because i'd never done one so I don't, I don't know what to say and how it's supposed to roll out so i got people's advice and got input you know and i got my little wedding ceremony all put together and, and i launched it out so like the introduction to the wedding service itself and i said something like you know Wedding is, the, uh, wedding is the most, or a marriage is the most intimate relationship in a man, into which a man and a woman may enter, and therefore it may be entered with joy. It's like flowery and beautiful, you know. And, then, and, wedding, and marriage is also the most permanent relationship into which a man and a woman may enter, 
here, and you know, should be entered with commitment. And, and then I said, marriage is the most holy relationship in a, into which a man and woman may enter, and therefore it should be entered soberly. <laughs> and that's what the wedding party did. They're all like, oh, that's really funny. Because we're all drunk. It's like, so I don't know, when you come to this thing, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think so as to have sober judgment. Makes me nervous. But what he's saying is, it's, it's really the word sound. It's a word that says, I want you to think wisely about yourself. I want you to think maturely about yourself. I want you to have sober judgment about yourself. And so I don't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. There's a one-word description of what he's talking about there. It's the word meekness. When you live out meekness, you live out not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And, of course, here we, we at Lakeside, you've been with us very long. You know we've got some values. We'll talk about them in a minute. But one of them is we love meekness. But it's a scary word. Because you go, if I have to be meek, do I have to check myself at the door? Do I have to check my ego? I have an ego. I have a personality. I have who I am. Do I have to check that at the door to be able to, to live out meekness? I don't know how that works. Can I be the real me and still be meek? Or do I have to disappear if I'm going to live out meekness? I like what C.S. Lewis wrote about it. He said in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, Meekness is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Somebody like, oh, write that one down. That was good. Yeah, that was C.S. Lewis. That's why it was good. <laughs> to be able to say, I aspire to humility is a noble statement. But it's a weird statement because you can never claim to have arrived at what you aspired to. Because you can't walk around going, I am so humble. And that just does not fly. You can't, you can't claim it, which is really a, an interesting thing because in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says this about Moses, the prophet. It says, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, which is really great until you find out that Moses is the one who wrote the book of Numbers. <laughs> Hey, Mo, it goes away when you claim it, you know. So just, just full disclosure, I think uh, an editor, a later editor added that part in because he knew Moses. Like maybe Joshua added that in after Moses was gone. It's like, hey, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth, you know, because you can't write that stuff about yourself. I mean, you can, but it won't be true. Can't be true. In our values, in our, in our playbook here at Lakeside, we have these values uh, one of them says, we give ourselves to others. That's an act of meekness. We give ourselves to others. Our second value is we celebrate life-giving grace. Whenever we see grace poured out somewhere and it brings life, it bubbles up life, we celebrate that. And then our third value statement is we love meekness. We didn't write, we are meek. We, wrote, we love meekness. We want meekness. We want to pursue meekness. We want to think of ourselves, we want to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's meekness. But you can't claim it, and it's hard to grasp. Yet Jesus blessed it. And remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 5? He said, blessed are the meek. 
for they will inherit the earth. There's a blessing on those who do not think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. How do you get that? Grady Scott wrote an article about Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, and about that blessing on the meek. He wrote in his article about a guy who was founding a group for meek people. He called them submissive people, and so his group was called doormats. The long title of their group is The Dependent Order of Really Meek and Timid Souls. Their motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. Lee Siegel, in an article in the Daily Beast, made this statement about meekness. He said, meekness is less than ever an attractive quality in American life. This might summarize our problem in our country. Meekness is less than ever an attractive quality in American life. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And yet, even as followers of Jesus, we struggle with it sometimes. We struggle with practicing meekness and living out. What does it look like? How do we do it? One of our ways to define meekness here at Lakeside, we, we, we knew we had to define it. When we put that out as a value, we said, Lakeside, love, we love meekness. Well, the beauty of that word is nobody uses it. In fact, if you go to the dictionary today and you look up a definition of meekness, they will say obsolete. So we said, let's use that word because we'll get to define it. And so one of the definitions we use to define meekness calls it power under control. And I'm a lot more comfortable with that. You know, if meekness is just abject humility and you, and you never get to rise above anything, it's like, oh, that's, that's painful. If that's what it is, do I really want that? But power under control? Like, okay, I can, I can lock into that. But even that needs some description so you understand what that looks like. The definition of meekness that we use, power under control, comes from a story of Alexander the Great 2,500 years ago or something like that. Alexander's father was King Philip of Macedonia, and they had, conquered a, they had conquered a nation or a foreign army, and in the process of conquering this army, there was a horse that belonged to the other army that no one rode because no one could break the horse, and now it was going to come into King Philip's possession, but nobody in his army could break the horse and ride it either. So they got this beautiful, huge, majestic horse with a great head, in fact, the horse's head was so big that Alexander, when he saw it, he named him Bucephalus, which means head like an ox. But nobody could ride Bucephalus because nobody could break him. So powerful, so wild, so strong. Alexander went to his father. Alexander still a young man. Alexander went to his father and said, Dad, I can, I can break that horse. King Philip said, you cannot my greatest warriors, my greatest horse trainers have not been able to break this horse. You cannot. You can't ride him. He said, no, I can, I can ride that horse. Alexander went over to the horse and whispered something in his ear. I don't know what that part of the story is about. And then he turned the horse's face into the sun. 
because he had noticed that the horse was afraid of his own shadow. That's where that phrase comes from. This great horse was afraid of his own shadow. And so Alexander turned his face into the sun, hopped on his back and rode away, wildly rode away from the camp. And several minutes later when he came back, the horse was tame. Alexander got off the horse, the great horse Bucephalus. He got off the horse and he said to his dad and to the rest of the army who was around, he said, that is a meek horse. Power under control. That's meekness in the life of a follower of Jesus. Power that comes from Christ, power that comes from God into our lives, but under control. Not outlandishly uh, exploited, not swung around like a wild sword. Power under control. The power of Christ under his control in our lives. When that happens, we're able to live out a meek life. We're able to live out. I don't think more highly of myself than I ought to think. But I think so as to have sound judgment. When I think of Bucephalus and Alexander and that picture of meekness, I'm like, that's a beautiful picture. And yet it doesn't help me a ton. Makes me feel good about it, but it doesn't help me a ton. Because I still have to figure out how to live practically as a meek person in this world. So to help us, Paul writes Romans 12. And he gives us not a definition of meekness, but a picture of it. A picture of what it looks like to live not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open up to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a copy of your scripture, we got copies on the chair next to you. You can use one of those. You can use your smartphone and go to the YouVersion Bible app if you want. we got some notes in there and the scriptures are in there. That's fine. Or you can just listen if you like. Romans chapter 12 Verse 9, listen to Paul's description of what meekness does. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. I love that passage of Scripture. Except it's so full of stuff to do. Like if I just tried to do every one of those things that he says to do, I'd be after that for the rest of my life. Which is not a bad idea, actually. But let me help break this down and just help figure out, if we can, some of the categories that he talks about as he writes to us about meekness. In verse 9 he says, love must be sincere. Literally the word sincere means without a mask. Love must be without a mask. So a meek person lives and loves without a mask. The, the word is not hypocritical. A hypocrite in the ancient Greek world was an actor. We don't think of actors that way. We, we just go, you're, you're playing a part. But that's what they were saying. You're, you're playing a part. It's not really you. The, the character you are on the stage, that's not really you. You're a hypocrite. You're, you're playing a part. He goes, I, I want you to love in a way that is not hypocritical. I want you to love without a mask. I want you to live your life, and I want you to love people in your life without a mask, without pretending. That's so hard for us as Christ followers because we're always trying to live up to the standard of Jesus. So we, end, we, we all fall short, so we put on a mask. So no one knows that we're falling short. He goes, I want your love to be sincere, without a mask, without pretending. The only way to do that is to lean into Jesus and his meekness. The only person that can love without a mask is a meek person who's not trying to surprise anybody, who's not trying to trick anybody. They don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. A meek person lives and loves without a mask. Then he goes on in verse 9, he says, Hate what is evil... Cling to what is good. There's an acknowledgement on, on the part of a meek person who says there is evil and there is good. In our world today, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that there's any evil. It's like, well, you do what you want. You know, it's okay for you. It's okay. Paul says, well, a, a meek person acknowledges that, in fact, there is good and evil. Not in an arrogant way. Not in the hubris of saying, look, everything's black and white. And if you're not black or white, then you don't know what you're talking about. We have a lot of people that today that believe in good and evil, but then we make sure everybody knows about that, and we, and we come about it in such an arrogant process. It's just that the meek person has an unshakable conviction that God recognizes good and evil. God establishes right and wrong, and he calls us to live with those. That's not a license to be hateful. And only the meek can pull that off. Only the meek can live like there is actually a right and a wrong, but do it without condemning the other people around them. Only the meek. Only the ones who don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. In verse 10, he goes on, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. He goes on, he says, live in harmony with one another. What you find out is that a meek person is people-focused. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be driven by tasks. Some of us are task-oriented. Some of us are people-oriented. I get all that kind of stuff. But a meek person gives their life for others, sacrifices themselves for others, for people. That's part of a meek tendency because you're not above it all you're in the midst of it all 
with others. There are four kinds of people, at least, in this passage that Paul describes for us. And he says, these are the kinds of people that a meek person will embrace. The first one is simply the other, which kind of means everybody. There's nobody that escapes your love or your sacrifice in this world because it's kind of everybody. Because he goes, he goes, be devoted to one another and honor one another and live in harmony with one another. It's all about the one another's. And if you've been reading the New Testament very long, you realize that all the way through the New Testament, there's these statements about how we care for one another. It's our calling. It's our responsibility. We care for one another. So we focus on the other. We look for the needs of others to try and meet the needs of others. It's part of what we do as a meek person. The next kind of person that he describes is those who are lowly, of low position. He says, don't be proud, but associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Some of us like to care for people of low position, but we like to do it from a distance. Like, sure, I'll, I'll give food to the food bank. That'll be great. That's fantastic. I, that's a beautiful thing to do, but sometimes that's all we like to do. It's like, just, you know, I'll give it to the food bank, but just keep it over there. And, and keep those people over there. Who? The people who have needs? And Paul says, associate with people of low position hang with them that's a whole different story for us but that's the activity of a meek person associate with those of low position i like how horace schultze laid this out at the leadership summit last year uh he has been one of the speakers at the leadership summit the last two years but but two summers ago when he came and spoke uh and horace schultze is the the founder and ceo of the ritz carlton hotel group uh, not, you know, I've never been in one because they charge a lot to go in one of those places. And so I've not been in one, but, you know, they have this high reputation for customer service, customer care. But Horst Schulze, when he, when he grew up, he grew up in the hotel industry and he grew up as a busboy, started out as a busboy. He's cleaning tables. And he never lost that awareness of what happens to those who are in those low positions. And so when he founded his chain, the Ritz-Carlton hotel group, he decided how he would treat people of low position. So every time he opens a brand new hotel, he goes personally to train the first group of staff. And he trains the maintenance crews. And he trains the housekeeping crews, as well as the front desk people and all, all the rest that goes with that. But he trains them all. And he gathers the housekeepers together and he gathers the maintenance workers together people that are often looked at as the low part of the organization. And he tells them this. He says, we are going to serve ladies and gentlemen in our hotel. And so here's how it will play out. We will be ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. He's talking to people that make beds for a living He's talking to people who clean toilets or fix toilets for a living. And he says, we will be ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That's a man who gets it. 
That's a man who understands meekness. It's about associating with the lowly. And when we practice meekness, we will we'll find ways to associate with the lowly. Paul then talks about another group of people. They are the strangers. He says, practice hospitality. Two-word command. Like, that's one of the easy ones in Scripture, right? Practice hospitality. Oh, I get, I get that. Except it's not exactly what we think of when we think of hospitality. The word hospitality that he uses is a word that says, love strangers. We have this thing in our culture sometimes. You hear the word xenophobia. You know xenophobia, the fear of strangers? This is the opposite. This is the love of strangers. This is the love of the outsider. Love them. And some of you are really, really hospitable. I, I, sometimes I get invited to your house or whatever, and I'm, I'm like, you're so amazingly hospitable. This is fantastic. And some of you do this thing where you, like, you invite someone over for dinner, and then they invite you back. Then you invite them back. And they invite you back. And now all of a sudden you're like good buddies, and it all started because you were hospitable to each other. But reciprocal hospitality is not what he's talking about. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's a beautiful thing. Reciprocal hospitality. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about taking care of the people who never can invite you back. Loving the stranger, caring for the stranger. That's a calling of the church of Jesus Christ is to care for the stranger and to practice hospitality. It's what the meek people do. And some people will say, well, that's risky. We don't know them. We, there's, there's risk involved in that. And I would say to us, every time you love someone, it's risky. Whether you know them or you don't know them, doesn't matter. Love is risky. Loving the stranger is risky. But it's the action of a meek person. And finally, the last group that he gets to is the enemy. So we're focused on the other, on the lowly, on the stranger, and on the enemy. He says, bless those who persecute you. How hard is that? Hard. Right? I, I think Paul writes this. He goes, bless those who persecute you. And in his mind, he's hearing the Roman Christians going, no, 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 that's too hard. So he says it again, bless and curse not. Oh, kind of a double, double whammy on the whole bless your enemy kind of thing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Then he goes, do not repay evil for evil. How many of you are humans? 40%. The rest of you are aliens, which means you're strangers and we can take care of you. So we got this all dialed in right here. So, okay. Those 40% of you who are actually humans... Don't you find that the natural human thing is to repay evil for evil? When something evil happens to you, or let's put it this way, when someone does something evil to you, what is your natural human born-in trait? Payback. Revenge. That's human. So the 60% of you who are like above the fray, God bless you. That's fantastic. But 40% of us have work to do. 
Because that's a human thing, to pay back evil for evil. Of course it is. But it's not the practice of the meek. It's not the practice of the follower of Jesus. Now, it may be the temptation, because God is still working on your heart like he's still working on my heart, but it's not the practice. The practice is to bless those who curse, who curse you, who persecute you. Bless them and curse not. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Is that clear? That's that's pretty easy to understand, yeah? Uh, If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Is that clear? Good. Because then he says, in doing this, you will heat burning coals on their head. I'm like, Paul, wait, is that the human thing coming out? Is that like, you know, give them something to eat, give them something to drink, like pour coals on their head, man, you're going to burn them up. It's so cool. Is that what he's talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about, which is embarrassing because my job is to tell you what he's talking about. There's a legend. I don't, know, I don't know if it's true. Frankly, there's not a ton of support for this, but there's a legend that says that in the ancient world, because they didn't have like matches and, and lighters and things like we have, fire sticks, you know, whatever, they didn't have that stuff. So they had to carry fire from one place to another to keep the fire going. And so someone who didn't have fire at their place, maybe their, their fire went out, they go someplace else and scoop up some coals into a, maybe into a, a clay pot that they carry on their head. And as they're walking with their pot back through town, other people would help them keep their fire lit by putting hot coals on their head or in their tray, in their pot, so that by the time they got to their house, they'd be able to pour that out where their fire was going to be, and they'd have fire. And so maybe Paul's saying, look, when, you, when your enemy's hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink, because you'll be, you know, putting hot coals in his head to keep his fire going. Well, that sounds kind. There's just not a lot of evidence that that's what that's about. But it's not really a great dilemma that you don't know what the metaphor means. Because you know what the command means. Paul, Paul flipped this around. Usually when I try and give you an illustration, I want the illustration to make clear the thing that was shady, the thing that was hard to understand, right? Here's an illustration. This will help you out. You know, it's about the horse with the big head, and he tamed it. You know, it's like, it's like that. Try and make it clear. Paul goes the opposite direction. Here's a clear command. When your enemy's hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink. You get that part. And you don't understand what the hot coals on the head is? Okay. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the activity of a meek person. That's the activity of a follower of Jesus. Now, I think there's too many things in that passage to apply for yourself today. You probably can't do every one of those things. You probably won't meet all four of those kinds of people today, but you'll meet at least one of them. You'll at least meet the other What if you were to take one of those statements that comes from Romans 12 and you go, I'm just going to live this one out. 
Maybe you, maybe you do that in your oikos. We, t- we talk about this group of 8 to 15 people that God's put on the front row of your life. Maybe you just go, who's in my network like that? Who's in my oikos? And I could just practice one of these things. Because in your oikos, it's really possible that there's someone who's lowly. It's possible that in your oikos, there's so- someone who's a stranger, someone who just moved into your neighborhood. They live like right next door to you. You don't even know them yet. Yeah, but God put them on the front row of your life. Or maybe, maybe even in your oikos, there's an enemy. And maybe they're not hungry, but maybe they have a need. And maybe you could figure out how to live that out with them. Or maybe as we talk about crafts this year, the crafts of a disciple of Jesus, the crafts of a follower of Jesus, scripture and prayer and generosity and connection and service, And maybe a lot of you have picked out one of those five crafts and said, this is the one I'm going to follow, work on, focus on this year. And maybe you go, how can the craft that I'm working on live out the practice of meekness that Paul describes in Romans chapter 12? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus, I pray for us. There's a lot in there to work on, and we acknowledge there's a lot in us to work on, so there's a good fit. And Lord, we would just pray that you would shape us in the way you want to shape us. Make us the kind of people you want us to be, who do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. Lord, let this be true of us. And as you make this true of us, work through your spirit to change the world through us. One person at a time, one stranger at a time, one enemy at a time. Lord, thank you. Amen.